everybody. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining Mary and myself today is Lamin Sarag, founder and CEO of Stellarify. Welcome to the show, Lamin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. I am so excited to like right before we start the conversation before the recording. I I remember the last time I I had talked to a mutual friend of ours. This was before um, like I started writing the last book, and that was a whole company and and a few before that. So time flies apparently during COVID. Um, so before we get to the Stellify story, can you walk us through your journey with our audience a little bit? Because not only you've played quite a few different roles in fintech circles. Everyone knows about you and what you've done. But also before that, you had an amazing backstory that you had shared on LinkedIn a few years ago on your childhood and upbringing. And I I, I would say it was very inspirational, but it's way more than that because it I, I was reading and I'm like, wait, what? How? Like, oh my God. Um, so the next thing I would love to do one of these days, I'll make that as um, my wish list for 2023 is actually meet you in person. So I think that's, uh, that's a great plan. And uh, we, can, we can host you in Austin if you like and treat you to all the tasty things uh, that are available in Austin. But, but thank you so much. I, uh, I, I, I agree. I do have an unusual story. Uh, I think for a fintech founder or for a founder in general, um, you know, we all have a story and, uh, and mine, uh, just kind of took me through, uh, multiple different countries, uh, dilapidated falling empires and, uh, you know, and, and new, new beginnings, if you will. Um, you know, I, where do I start? I, I can start with my childhood because I, I think it's a it's sort of a formative platform to, um, you know, to 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 rest to the, the story as it develops and the decisions that I made as an adult. So I, uh, I was born in uh, now a country of Azerbaijan. Uh, back then, it was uh, one of the republics of, of the Soviet Union. Um, into uh, a family that that was uh, fairly well off. My grandparents uh, were in the pharmaceutical industry in the Soviet Union. Uh, they were both uh, in a scientific community. Uh, but they came out of, they came from nothing virtually. My grandfather's, uh, family, you know, was, uh, a family was fairly uneducated. He was, uh, basically herding sheep as a young boy and then used the system, uh, you know, to his advantage, the communist system to obtain education, uh, study, you know, chemistry and biosciences and then landed in pharmaceuticals. By the time I was born, I was born into a pretty cushy, uh, life. And, and you know, in the country that gets, um, a fairly bad rep in terms of the quality of life. I actually, uh, by contrast, had a really good life. Um, my father was Tunisian, and this is also a pretty unusual combination. He was a student uh, studying uh, in the USSR, where I met my mother. Uh, and so because of uh, his Tunisian citizenship, we, we had an additional layer of privilege. We could travel out of USSR when we wanted to. Which, uh, which gave us both best of two worlds, uh, sort of the stability that I had, you know, with my family in Azerbaijan and then the ability to, to go to Europe whenever we wanted to or Tunisia to go visit my, my father's side of the family. So as a child, uh, you know, I've I had a fantastic life. And then in 1989, um, at the end of 1989, the Soviet Union started to sort of fall apart. And, uh, and, uh, a lot of the republics kind of reverted to, you know, old ways, pre-Soviet ways, uh, pre sort of a cultural integration, pre uh, suppression of religion, and a lot of the old, you know, old feelings, if you will, start to bubble up. And um, and what happened in Azerbaijan, there a really complex conflict erupted, 
between Azeris and, uh, and Armenians. And my mother is half Armenian, half Azeri, Azerbaijani to be precise, uh, which was a toxic combination at the time. And so we, uh, my family, you know, became part of a group that was targeted. Uh, ultimately, um, anyone who was not Azerbaijani got driven out of Baku in 1990 uh, that it's today referred to as the Baku pogroms that occurred and many people died in the process. Uh, the Soviet army, you know, drove through the city and, uh, and to, to suppress the, you know, the, the, all of the activity, if you will, and ended up causing more damage. And so we fled, we jumped on a train with basically just clothes in our back and uh, landed in Moscow uh, in 1990 as the uh, Soviet Union ceased to exist with no documents no status of any kind because, you know, we were sort of citizens of the country it didn't exist anymore. Um, and, you know, Russia was not particularly eager to uh, give out their citizenship to uh, to folks who just kind of like showed up out of nowhere uh, and spent six years in Moscow as refugees. Uh, to shorten the story, there are a lot in between, obviously, as you can imagine. We, uh, we ended up um, figuring out a way out of Russia by 1996, uh, uh, escaping with fake documents uh, across Europe. Uh, seven countries across Europe into Netherlands and then come into the United States. And so that's, um, it was a quite an experience. I was 16 by the time I came to us. Uh, and, uh, and from that point on, I, I knew I had to do something to create stability for my family. Uh, and I was acutely aware of, uh, of experiences that, you know, marginalized groups. Uh, I just had no idea what I was going to do quite, to be quite frankly, professionally, because I, I did not understand how, you know, this capitalist economy worked and how the system worked. And I need, I knew I needed to culturally integrate. I knew, I knew I needed time to, to figure out and assimilate. And so I did what many immigrants do. I joined the military. Uh, so I joined the Marines, uh, as my first real job. Uh, I spent six years in the Marine Corps. Um, I even deployed to Iraq, uh, right after, you know, the invasion in 2003. Uh, in 2004, I uh, volunteered to go. And, uh, and, you know, once again, many other stories associated with that experience. Uh, but to, um, you know, to kind of shorten it, I, I left the Marines and, uh, and used that as a stepping stone, right, to, to higher education, uh, to a very different socioeconomic strata, because it became, think of it as a vehicle for social mobility uh, for me. Um, and so studied business and finance, because I was obsessed with you know, creating uh, economic stability, as I mentioned, for you know myself and my family initially, and then when I you know I reached a point, uh, you know, after landing in financial services where I felt you know comfortable uh, enough, I, I wanted to help others, and that's what led me down the path um, and that I am on today. Right, so I left um, the private sector finance to join the OCC, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is a, a bureau of US Treasury that supervises nationally chartered banks, to truly figure out how to create inclusion in banking. Because I knew that I couldn't do it, you know, working for a bank or working for a financial organization. I knew I, I had to have a vantage point that gave me access to the entire institution and, uh, you know, an ability to see the misalignment uh, where it exists. And it certainly has and helped me really truly understand how the system works. What is banking? What is money? For example, you know, all those concepts, um, that I think are lost frequently. And, unfortunately, in a lot of fintech founders, well, you know, we see, we see the surface, uh, of, uh, of, of, of banking, but we really don't understand the drivers behind it. And, you know, being part of the OCC gives you the ability to truly understand the fabric, uh, you know, the, the sort of the political framework. The, the, the close ties to the policy world, right? 
and you know banking not really being a sort of a private sector uh, operation, but rather an arm of the government, right, to institute monetary policy, to implement uh, you know foreign policy initiatives uh, like freezing accounts of uh, foreign entities and so forth. There's so much uh, more to it. Money is not being just a, a unit of measure. Money is uh, you know a unit of uh, of measure that represents. Uh, represents American power, really, the hegemony, right? Uh, U.S. dollar is not just, you know, the way you exchange value, but rather uh, I, it's a, you know, it's a promise that you know, we'll, we'll keep the stability in the world of, uh, of sorts. And it's a, it's a promise of safe haven for, uh, for value for other, you know, other, other people around the globe. It's a really interesting, complex, uh, you know, a, a set of lessons that I learned while at the Treasury. And and, you know, decided to leave and naively thinking that I was going to change the world now with this you know, sort of a new, newly acquired knowledge and, uh, and dove into, uh, into, you know, the, the fintech world with my very first company called Token. So let me, let me pause here. I know this is a, a very lengthy introduction, but, um, nonetheless, hopefully informative one. Lost of words because part of the story that you were telling about your family and what you've gone through it resonated with me because my mom went through something similar when she was growing up and she would tell me stories about her family reestablishing themselves in Hong Kong as refugees with nothing they had a huge family she would tell me like four four of them um her and three sisters they would share one bed and they would have to rely on generosity of, of people around them. They had to rely on generosity of the Catholic Church, of, of government, of neighbors, people that would just, that was how they made their ends meet. And, and I remember she, of all the things, the one thing that she taught me, and, and I use that example a lot, is how you end up in the world and what you end up doing is not just about whether or not you have the passion and the drive to succeed is also about circumstances, about choices that you make. And it's about choices that people made for you that sometimes you don't get a say in it. And so, so you, your story is, is, is amazing, is moving. It was moving when I read it. I read it a few times and is even more so now when, when you're just narrating it. And I, I just say, wow, I think that's all I wanted to say. Sorry. Mary, I, I, I'm lost of words. Okay. You take over. I'll step in. Um, I'll fast forward to the OCC and like the big reveals you had there. You know, I'm curious, you know, what was one of the big things that you learned that was surprising or, or, you know, just something you didn't expect that you think might be useful for either a fintech company to consider or a bank to consider? Yeah, so I, I kind of glazed over that, but the the nature of banking was uh, was absolutely uh, mind boggling to me when when I understood the, its role uh, in a society, especially in a, in an American society. You know, banking um, as it exists around the globe varies wildly, right? And despite the fact that there you know the international treaties and laws that uh, you know attempt to create uniformity, especially when it comes to you know, risk management. Banking uh, as it exists in, say, Canada is radically different uh, as it is in the United States. And that was a massive uh, sort of a kind of a, a 
blind spot for me before because you know I was inside of Merrill Lynch. Uh, I was there as Merrill Lynch was getting acquired by Bank of America, and I understood banking, but I didn't realize what what it was. Uh, and at you know at the OCC, I finally understood it to truly you know be a tool uh, for a foreign policy tool, a domestic policy tool to be an extension of uh, you know of of government's ability to make decisions right and uh, and to govern uh, people so to speak and i you know I, I got so obsessed with it i started to read books about the history of banking especially in the united states it's so fascinating right um you know learn about how jp morgan was a uh, de facto secretary of state negotiating deals on behalf of the federal government before there was a you know the state department so to speak uh, that had any power at all and how, you know, that institution alone still exists, right? And those roots, uh, that legacy, that DNA doesn't go away and, and how much influence it has on, you know, on decisions that are made today in the United States and as it reverberates through the world. Uh, learning about branching, for example, uh, I don't most people don't know this, but, you know, branches were created in the antebellum South. Uh, they were created specifically to facilitate slave trade. Uh, so you have, you know, a bank in, uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, that is, uh, is in, you know, engaging in a trans, a slave trade transaction with, a you know, with a slave owner from, say, New Orleans. And, uh, and the notes, bank notes from a New Orleans bank are kind of worthless, right? Or, or they're, they're sort of like scrutinized because there's risk because it's a bank in another state. Uh, and, and so they created this concept of branches to just sort of smooth out the commerce, uh, when it comes to, you know, human trafficking. I mean, how crazy it is uh, that 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 appendage, this ugly history, uh, exists uh, today, and it's such it's such a you know normal part of like you know banking experience for an average American. No one knows that, but those things don't just like evaporate, right? They don't just like, adapt and evolve into something benign. This is like an ugly history that uh, you know continues to influence a whole slew of things. Uh, and so anyway, like that time at the OCC was, uh, you know, was just a, an, an incredible time for me to understand why banking, first and foremost, and then how, right? And so when I, you know, when I build products, uh, they're informed with the sort of this richness of that experience. Um, I, I did not know that about branches, which is like really wild and then extra wild to think about like you know there's so many people who are uncomfortable going to a bank branch today and i just wonder you know like how the past is showing up in the present um and it certainly is and it's, and it's a very similar context you have a you know marginalized group today that you know, suffers the brunt uh of like this branching system that sort of was created as, a, as an oppression tool and it still is in a way in a very different way it is an oppression tool today Anyway, but you know we we we're digressing here, but uh, that's just kind of a micro uh, example of, of a whole slew of things that I that I sort of learned. You know, the the, the real lesson here for like say uh, a startup founder or, or you know someone who runs a fintech uh, is that when you understand the purpose of banking and its role as it plays, you you sort of understand that you can't just disrupt it. You can waltz in there with a better tech and uh and somehow like change the system i get you know i get founders tell me this all the time they're like well if we were building monetary system today would we build it you know the way it was built you know 100 years ago and and of course they'll pitch me some blockchain thing and uh <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it is it's mind-boggling it's like of course we wouldn't build it that way but you can't just like sprinkle you know some distributed ledger and say that we uh we're going to remove you know uh hundreds and hundreds of years of, uh, of evolution 
when it comes to our understanding of finance, our understanding of trust, our understanding of like policymaking and governance, and somehow like uh, let some 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 distributed mechanism with SHA-256 encryption hashes, you know, deal deal away with it. It's like saying your you know, human brain is inefficient, right? But it evolved it, it evolved that way. It's the best thing we have. We can't just replace it with an iPhone as much as we like to. So let's pick up from there, um, from the OCC, and then you started Token. Um, and then how did that go from that to, <laughs> I don't know, a, a few companies in between to what you're doing right now? Token is actually a fun story. We, we can spend a little bit of, a little bit of time on Token. Um, so I was at the OCC, and uh, I was in Denver. Denver is a Western District uh, office for the OCC, meaning that you know every bank from Kansas to Guam uh, sort of like supervised by by the Denver office. It was a fascinating experience. I was part of the field office that that, that had banks mostly in Colorado and the Midwest. And so 36 um, nationally chartered banks, if I'm not mistaken, at the time that fell under our control. And so uh, a lot of our banks, unsurprisingly at that time, just 20, 2014, 2015, uh, were sort of waking up to this new, you know, newly found economy that is cannabis uh, in states like Colorado and California, uh, Oregon. And um, and they were coming back to us and saying, "Hey, what do we do? Like, we want to, we want to, we, we're here to serve our community." And and you know, pragmatically, they're seeing that as a potential opportunity to make uh, you know uh, additional revenues. How can we serve these businesses? And I was part of the team uh, just by virtue of being in the right place at the right time, and that that was figuring us out, right? And so we were talking to Washington uh, on a regular basis. We were looking at. Uh, the Cole Memorandum at the time, there were two notes written by um, uh, you know, James Cole that, uh, from the DOJ essentially saying that, hey, you can do this as long as you don't do bad things like traffic weapons and sell to you know, miners. But as long as you do it the right way, the DOJ is not going to allocate any resources to you know, coming after you. Right. So it's just one of those things saying that we're going to look the other way. And then we basically, you know, we had so many conversations with, uh, with the Treasury. The FinCEN ended up uh, issuing a laundry list of, of things that banks could do uh, to engage with cannabis um, as a space. And it was, uh, it was basically this surveillance framework uh, that I knew for a fact as an OC examiner, banks couldn't implement. Uh, you know, having spent time in the military and, uh, you know, seen tools like Palantir, right, that, that are used by the intelligence community, I knew that there's, a, there's an opportunity there. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to leave the OCC and I'm going to build uh, Palantir Lite, if you will, to uh, to give uh, banks the, the tools to implement the surveillance framework on transactions. But in order to do this, we have to build it end to end. We have to build a point of sale system. We have to build mobile wallets. We have to build a banking backend uh, to kind of... Um, create an experience of banking for these dispensaries. And so that was token. So it was a very, very ambitious. Uh, it was incredibly ambitious for someone who's never built a company before <laughs> to dive into it, but I thought I could do it. Uh, so token, token was an interesting journey, you know, because of what we did, because of my background, we, we got a lot of attention. Uh, you know, New York Times like profiled us uh, on the front page of Deal Book. Uh, pretty much every publication around the globe wanted to talk about why this former OCC examiner, you know, facilitating, you know, weed commerce. <laughs> um, but to me, it was so much more, right? I, I saw token as, um, as a way to solve a problem that was so acute 
that I knew for a fact I could raise capital, even as a unknown person, as a founder. Uh, and I thought this is a foothold for me to build an inclusive banking product. We'll learn a lot of lessons. This is such a tough space to break. It's so highly regulated. If we can create a banking product that solves this problem, we can do this for other people. We can, we can get out there and help freelancers and, uh, and, you know, people who are engaging in new types of business, folks who are being discriminated against for various different reasons, the unbanked. And so to me, it was always that vision was always there, right? Uh, but, um, with, uh, you know, with, with, with the country electing, uh, Donald Trump as a president and, uh, and ultimately, uh, replacing virtually all of the guidance out there, um, uh, post election, that model just kind of fizzled out and the business died. Uh, and so I, uh, I decided that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to stop, uh, with a mission. We're just going to like sell what we can and, uh, and then, you know, use the proceeds from the sell to then seed, uh, you know, phase two, really. And so we, we call the next company Joust that you know well, but Joust is very much, um, I don't know. It's like a, an evolution of token, really. That's what, that's what it was. <laughs> moment where you're like, I, I'm, I gotta stop this, you know, how, how clear was it in your mind? This was time to evolve into Joe. I mean, I just feel like this is an important thing happening for FinTech yeah. companies now. Um, how do you, how do you kill your baby? You know? Yeah, it, it was never that moment. I mean, I've had many, many times where I, I knew rationally and intellectually that this is it, right? We hit a wall and there's no, there's no going any further beyond this. Uh, but, you know, frankly, I was, I was too stubborn and too immature as a founder to accept it. And so I just like put my head down and kind of continued, continued on, on the journey and continued pushing until I knew for a fact. Uh, so what happened is that <laughs> one of our banks that we, we worked with, uh, seized all of our assets and they're like, look, guys, um, just overnight without, uh, any warning at all, they just got spooked with, some message that went out from the White House that was fairly negative about the industry. Like, we don't want to be part of this. I mean, we had all of the contracts signed. We were obviously doing everything on up and up. And I knew at this point, like, I didn't want to do this anymore. Like, this is, um, this was counterproductive. And so by the time we got, you know, our assets back, uh, I knew that, um, that token was done and, and that entire operation. In fact, I knew that banking and cannabis was not going to be solved until, uh, federal prohibition ends. To me, that became so clear that I, I was, I, I basically said, no more. We, we're going to do banking, but we're not going to do banking in cannabis. <laughs> wow. What's the first thing you did when it, your assets were seized by that bank? Uh, I mean, I freaked out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. and crying, but I'm wondering how you, how you dealt. <laughs> well, you know, they the, the froze our account, and uh, and I thought to myself, I, I mean, I felt like like I was doing something wrong, right? That's to me, that's how they're treating us, and I wasn't. We were trying to create transparency, and uh, at the time, I was just trying to do some reflection, and I, and I thought to myself, I'm like, man, I like I don't want to be I don't want to be the bad guy here. I certainly don't want to be uh, perceived as a criminal of any kind. Like that's how I was being treated. And, and, you know, and then I, I, I thought about the industry and I thought about, you know, where they are. And I thought about, you know, the incentive for banks to go any further with this existing framework that, that, that's still in place. Right. 
uh, two administrations later and nothing has changed. And, uh, and I realized that, you know, as much as I want to help these businesses, there's nothing that a software founder could do. Uh, and, uh, and even if we were to push things and get creative with not breaking laws, but breaking rules, we get ourselves in trouble. And, and, you know, this is not the first time our assets are probably be seized. Um, and so that's kind of what we went through my mind. And I, you know, I went back to that bank and I, I said, I said to them, like, look, guys, we, we want to play this by, we will always play this by the rules. We were there adhering to all of your requirements by literally providing software to give you that transparency. And, you know, eventually they, they kind of went through it because they freaked out as well. And then, and, you know, we, we kind of like wind that whole thing down. And then from there on, you started Jolst, which you called it the 2.0 journey. Yeah, 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so how did that transition over? And then, and then how, how did the idea eventually for Stellify came about? Because that's this yeah. year, right? Yeah, exactly. So, well, the idea came, uh, you know, much earlier for Stellify, but uh, the company started this year. We're super young. Yeah. So, you know, everything sort of builds on top of you know, previous experiences, right? There's, there's never um, innovation, especially innovation doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so for, for Joust, it was, a, it was an interesting evolution from tokens. So we've learned a lot about banking. We learned a lot about risk management. Uh, fundamentally, that was uh, that was like our asset uh, when we walked away from it, and we sold uh, you know the software, and we ended up uh, you know making some money there. But ultimately, we uh, we learn a lot about taking data from disparate sources uh, that historically were not in the same place, bringing it together, and making sense of it, right? And then making a decision whether you know someone is a good guy or a bad guy to simplify it. And we thought. You know, we want to help people uh, access banking. What can we do with what we've learned here and, uh, and, and continue on this mission? And, you know, I, I was already thinking about other industries when, when we were running token because I was always going to go out and, uh, and, and, and serve other folks. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about high-risk businesses and I realized I don't, I don't want to touch high-risk businesses. There's stigma. There's, the, you know, they're the, like crazy ethical concerns that I had, for example, with uh, folks who needed uh, the, the type of product token was building. That was adult entertainment, uh, that was uh, you know, gun cells and all those other companies. And I thought, you know, what if we served a much bigger market that wasn't stigmatized and wasn't sort of like, you know, pigeonholed into, uh, into these high risk categories, but just as uh, underserved. And that was freelancers, contractors. But the needs were different, right? So if you're a freelancer or a contractor, you could get a bank account and you didn't, you don't have any issues acquiring one usually anywhere. Uh, but the, what you struggle with is, uh, is usually access to, uh, to capital uh, because you, you, you had a hell of a time, especially back then. A lot of it's normalized now. There's so many companies that do it, but back then it's, uh, you know, you, you couldn't prove to a bank that, that, you know, your seasonal income is sufficient to, uh, to be able to take out a mortgage. Uh, you, you, you had hell of a time, uh, convincing, you know, people who paid you or paid your invoices to pay you on time. And so half of the time, you know, you'd wait for your invoices twice as long as you should have. And so those two things were kind of like tight, tight, highly correlated or, or, or very tight and close. And so if you're waiting for on your invoices, you're waiting to get paid, you don't have consistency of income, then, you know, the banks are screwing you over because they don't understand that cyclicality or they don't, don't understand, you know, having to wait because 
you know, Google is being slow and, and paying you or some other big company. And we thought, you know, we could probably pull those pieces together and, uh, and create a bank that, uh, that was more efficient, that understood our customers. And that was Joust, right? That was, uh, uh, Joust, I think, and st still believe, uh, was absolutely brilliant idea. Um, I think, uh, I think if, uh, you know, we did a better job executing and, and had better timing, it could have been a multi-billion dollar company. But ultimately, you know, it was it was a success. It was a relative success, um, you, know, uh, you know, through the acquisition. And certainly for me personally, uh, it was a nice windfall financially. Uh, it was a great time uh, to uh, to solve, you know, to create security for the team, uh, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. So that was a, that was a joust experience uh, in a sort of a quick digest here. Well, I, I, I remember reading about Joust and, and I was looking at what the company was doing and I'm like, oh my God, this, this makes perfect sense because many of us lived through it. We're talking about uneven income and, you know, not having access to capital, not having access to a mortgage. And I think a lot of that problem actually is still around. Um, and I do worry a little bit, especially in light of how the economy is doing with so many people have being laid off with changing patterns of employment. Um, I think there is going to be more challenges, but there are again, opportunities, right? For us to, to do something different. And so onto something fun, which is more recent now, Stellify. Um, and, and I read, um, what, what, your interview had and um and i know thank you mary for for doing the bridge and all of that tell us a little bit about stellify and what you guys are doing right now yeah for sure i'll start with you know the the original idea because it's it's a really interesting um set of drivers for why we're doing what we're doing um first it is very personal for me so like token and uh and joust were important uh efforts in my opinion to like to serve my personal needs in terms of like wanting to create inclusion. Uh, but I was sort of, I always felt like I danced around what I really wanted to do and that serve the consumer specifically uh, and help consumers access capital. Cause that was a, you know, a personal problem I faced, my family faced it. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, how do you navigate this kind of financial landscape? How do you get good at money? How do you make money simpler? Cause it's, it was always so complex. You know, like it doesn't come natural to most people, especially if you're an immigrant or part of a you know marginalized group. And uh, and so I uh, I made a lot of mistakes, right? When I was when I was young, I I bought things I shouldn't have bought with with uh, the credit I shouldn't have had. I uh, I was late on my payments. I even had my car repossessed once uh, right after I got out of Marine Corps and I lost my job. I've lived that life, and I knew how difficult it is to like. Pull yourself by your own bootstraps. Nearly impossible, if not impossible, without others supporting you. But there's not a lot of uh, you know support systems out there, right? And and you have um, a whole bunch of scammers that are always trying to sort of prey on on you as a as a consumer and and you know either helping you like repair your credit or providing some nonsensical financial advice. And so I always wanted to solve that problem. And uh, and when I was at Zen Business, which acquired um, Joust. One of the things we tried to stand up was uh, was credit product for uh, for these micro businesses that, by the way, basically are consumers, right? These are people, people who are trying to stand up a business, and we had a hell of a time trying to trying to qualify them for credit. And we we worked with a couple of partners, just couldn't do it. And I looked around for tools to help uh, 
take a person who maybe made a few decisions historically that uh, that make them appear to be a bad borrower and make them a better borrower, not to like distort the nature of risk, but rather to help them become better at managing money. And there's absolutely nothing out there that had true sort of real impact on people. And I got obsessed with the fact that there's nothing in the market, but there's so many freaking tools out there, hundreds and hundreds of tools uh, that either you know help you build credit by giving you like secured products, their budgeting tools. There's so much crap out there that simply doesn't address the pro those problem head on. And so I started to think about it. Uh, and, and when I say think, uh, it was an understatement. I was obsessed with this concept. <laughs> I caught that bug and I, I, I was just every second of my free time, I was looking up um, you know, research on, uh, on what kind of personal financial management tools out there, what's out there, how are people using it, what's going on with the American consumer, the, the impact of various different economic trends. And, um, and it occurred to me that the problem is actually, it's got a very interesting drivers, at least in the United States, that most Americans actually have the money. So it's not a cash flow issue. Most, it's a wealthy country. And even the, the folks in the lower socioeconomic strata have sufficient uh, capital to pay their bills, and, and, and but they're habitually late on those bills. And because they're habitually late on those bills, they have bad credit. But the reason they're late on those bills is because there's a misalignment between when the bills are due and when they get paid. Uh, and so unsurprisingly, their companies are trying to solve that problem, right, by early wage access, by giving you a portion of your paycheck earlier. And, and I thought this is an interesting way to solve it. Uh, I'm sure there are economic theorists that will probably tell you it's probably the most efficient way just to give someone money, right? That they, and, and they'll make a decision. But what we've learned is that, you know, people tend to make decisions based on their needs in the moment. And sometimes those needs are not necessarily aligned with their long-term goals. And, uh, and not to create something that is, uh, you know, in a way is patronizing, right? And, and, and makes an assumption that we know what's best for you as a customer, but to create enough of a framework to keep someone disciplined, almost like a, a coach or a personal trainer, we wanted to create uh, a tool to do two things, help pay people's bills, right? So actually pay their bills and then help them pay that, pay what we paid for them back. So collect our money back. And ultimately, that was the idea behind Stellar. That's how Stellar was born as a concept. Um, and so my biggest fear was that, well, maybe customers will never get that. And it's too complicated. I mean, if we, if we went out to, in, into the market that's used to, you know, either free money or credit type products and said, hey, we're here to pay you bills with this bill pay solution, it'll be too complicated. They won't get it. They'll be confused. Uh, we'll, we'll never have a business. And, and I honestly try to talk myself out of doing this by trying to convince myself and trying to find enough reasons that where, you know, those assertions would be supported and finally decided to build a prototype. And so we build a prototype. We put uh, a bunch of users through it and we got such amazing feedback that, you know, it was pretty clear to me that I had to leave, um, you know, Zen business and, uh, and go start Stellar. And so I did. So we started Stellar in, uh, in January. Um, so you asked me, what is Stellar? Stellar is bill pay that builds your credit, right? That's um, uh, in a nutshell. We are a really unique and innovative product where we're a bill payment product uh, that allows you to link your bills, link your bank account, uh, and then we pay those bills and then we pay ourselves back, you know, using your linked bank account. That's that simple. But our vision is something very different. 
our vision is to tr completely redefine the relationship between the consumer and the lender, uh, meaning the credit relationship. And so I'm happy to talk about that because this is a pretty uh, you know abstract uh, concept here. But uh, but yeah, we're starting with something elegant, something simple, something potent that solves the problem very well for our users. But we're, we're sort of heading toward something much more you know abstract and big and, and truly a uh, culture defining. Already there's two really interesting things going on with what you're doing, and that's like the range of bills someone can pay through you. I would love you to give some examples of that, but also, you know, everyone's talking about revenue models and how they like undermine um, someone's mission. Um, and that's usually related to interchange fees, but you are starting with a subscription model. So I'd love for you to weigh in on both of those things. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, my two favorite topics. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> so bills. Uh, bills is a really complex space, right? There's it's a graveyard of uh, I think well-intentioned companies uh, that try to solve bill payments for uh, for Americans for decades. Um, I, I was chatting with someone who still uses a product that actually exists and somehow is still alive after 25 years, where. Um, if you don't want to like worry about all your bills, you create this virtual box. I think it's somewhere in, in Wyoming or South Dakota, and all of your physical mail goes there. Now that was you know that was that was a thing that people did 25 years ago. All of your mail goes to that virtual box. Someone there basically opens your bills and they pay your bills on your behalf, and that way you don't have to worry about your bills. It's all on autopilot. Uh, so that concept is not a brand new concept, but it's such a difficult thing to execute uh, on, you know, efficiently, especially at scale. That's why that company couldn't do it. Uh, there's, there's somehow like they're, they're zombies and they exist, but, but they're not a company that everyone uses, right? And then, you know, the modern attempts at bill pay uh, also failed because you have to have a population of billers that's meaningful, that, that, that provides enough coverage where an average person say, yeah, well, 90% of my bills are covered, so I'll use you. And that is notoriously difficult. And it's difficult because most people approach it, uh, I think, through a wrong um, kind of a lens in terms of thinking of how to manage those billers. You know, we all, it's not just VCs, right? Founders also pattern followers. So we, we, we do see patterns and we, we, we like to pretend to be independent thinkers, but, but we, we do like patterns. And, uh, and we, if we if identify a pattern that works, we tend to try to jam it into a product. And so, you know, everyone sees uh, the success of uh, the Plaid had with aggregation when it comes to banks. Uh, you know, we all complain about Plaid and FinTech. But we all use Plaids <laughs> because they, they do manage those bank uh, connections really well uh, for the most part. And so the natural tendency is to say, well, let's do the same thing for billers. Let's bring in you know, the billers that we can. Let's scrape into those websites and let's manage those billers. And then we create this you know, really, really interesting product. But you know, bill space is not banking. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of billers. It's not just you know, 6,000 banks in this country. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of billers and a long tail of these mom and pop uh, type, uh, you know, type billers out there like property managers and so forth. So it's nearly impossible. So everyone to try to try to use that same aggregation approach and failed miserably. There's not a product now in the market that does it well. Um, and then, you know, you have old school ways of just using MasterCard uh, 
to like remit a payment using an alternative to ACH, right? RPPS, as MasterCard calls it, their system. So that's, that's the only thing that exists. And so when we were thinking uh, about our product, we were very much aware of those limitations and those challenges. And so we thought, well, how can we, a new startup doesn't have enough resources to manage hundreds of thousands of billers efficiently and effectively. How can we have a population of billers that, that has 99.999% coverage for average consumers? And it occurred to us that we can fake it. <laughs> we can fake it, but, uh, but we can have the experience that feels like we have those integrations and it's a very smooth experience. And so what we created is really something really, really cool uh, that works quite well for consumers. We created UI that, that lets you find any biller in, um, in the world, really. Uh, you just search by the name and, and we basically scrape all the websites and, and the billers pop up. And you find the biller that you want to pay. Uh, you, you select them. Uh, we create a form. It looks like you, you are, in fact, creating a biller in our system, but it's just a UI experience. And then what we do is we generate a virtual card, uh, a virtual prepaid card that is uh, that sort of sits on top of that form and you press next and we then host a page uh, that is a billers page in our environment so it feels like you're you know you're still in our application but really we're just being a browser right and uh, you go into that billers website you go into your settings and you put our card on file as top of wallet and then you you say submit and then our system uh recognizes that action and then shows you that biller as a linked biller. And every time the biller attempts to pull the money from that card, the system updates. And, and, and so you see the activity, you see the status of that bill, and it feels incredibly, incredibly familiar going through those steps because that's what you do normally with your normal cards, right? And so now you have all those bills uh, in one place instead of you know, having your card in disparate you know, websites. Uh, but, you know, and it feels like they're all linked to our system but really, you just went through the steps of a robot and, you know, in a scraping function. So we're using our customers in the way, you know, Plaid uses, you know, RPA uh, to do the, you know, the heavy lifting. But it doesn't feel friction laden enough where the customers don't like it. So, so that was kind of our, you know, clever way of, of giving our customers what they want, meaning 100% or 99% of the coverage without having to build it, right? Naturally. And I want to be very clear about our, our strategy going forward. Naturally, we're thinking for our high traffic billers and Netflix of this world, we will have direct integrations in the future because it makes perfect sense to maintain, you know, a handful of uh, super high traffic bills where we have direct connections where we truly, truly, truly like eliminate any steps in linking the bill. I just select it and uh, we find who you are instantly and boom, the bill is linked. You don't have to worry about like putting any, any payments on file. So let me pause here. Uh, does that make sense? That's uh, I know this is uh, kind of an interesting way of solving that problem. I think so. And it's fascinating because every time when people talk about bill payments, um, they talk about helping consumers, you know, create a, a smoother journey. I can't help but go back to think about healthcare payments, right? That's also another area that I think a lot of startups have tried to crack and we had not been able to because there's a lot of negotiations that have to go into the different um, uh, transactions, if you will. 
and a lot of complications, but yet it's also another area that deeply impact a consumer financial wellness, you know, on how much they can afford to, to pay, how we can help them pay. And so that's, it's a side story, but that's another area I wish, you know, someone, someone can help uh, consumers with. What if we pay our healthcare bills on time? Or, you know, can we help someone? It, it, it's one of those, I remember someone said, healthcare is one of the very few industries where you don't have a clear list of how much it will cost you to do X before you go in. You practically go into the hospital, you come out and you say, oh my God, I have like these 20 things. How do it's I- It's a massive surprise, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a massive surprise. But anyway, I digress. It's, it's, it's interesting, it's really, really cool. Um, way that you just mentioned and how you guys solve it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree um, because it gives us the ability to then have the coverage for, you know, your mm -hmm. one-off bills like your healthcare bill. You can, you can set it up right there in seconds and boom, it's there and you can manage it there. But, you know, we've seen folks link things that we didn't expect. So we, we naturally thought that, look, we're young. Uh, we still need to build trust with customers. So we'll see a bunch of small bills like, you know, your, uh, your subscriptions, your Hulus, your Netflix of this world. But we, we've seen people link uh, all of their bills. We have some customers have linked 25 plus bills to the platform. And these are like their, their mortgage or their rent. Uh, we've seen things like child support payments uh, being linked and paid on our platform. I mean, we've seen everything. Vice, various different vice type bills. Like OnlyFans is, is a really popular bill that, that people link. And it's a recurring bill. And, you know, we, we obviously don't take any, any moral stance there. I think whatever you pay that's recurring that you need help with, we will help you. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, it's so important to, to, to people to be able to like see those things in one place. Cause now they, they can start thinking about budgeting. Because if you have, you know, 25 bills and you realize that, holy crap, why am I paying those three bills at the bottom? Like this is, uh, this is the reason why I'm late on other bills. You can start prioritizing. And it's uh, it's it's it sounds like it's a you know a trivial thing to uh, just to put all bills in one place, but psychologically, uh, it's it's such a powerful tool to um, you know, to be able to truly like comprehend that complexity in just one app and one screen. Yeah, that I wonder, Theo, do you know? Wells Fargo's control tower, I think it puts all mm -hmm. your bills together yeah. on the screen. I wonder how that's doing. But to Levine's point, I mean, certainly you forget about the things you keep your card on file with. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's been a while since I hear anything about them. I think the last time was, oh God, three, four <laughs> years ago? <laughs> we had the three year black hole bet. I, I swear it was a long time. It's been a long time. Um, you, you, you brought up, Another thing I, I'm thinking about, and we can talk about this on, on the side, is, you know, apart from putting your own um, bills that you need to manage and you need to get paid, perhaps a, a future extension of that could have been help you manage someone else's um, payments in your account too. And and the reason why I think about that is because every time when I see a fintech solution that that's helping consumers uh, manage their money and manage their bill paid and all of that. And you can get a lot of insights out from those data, right? You know, what are they using it for? How often are they paying things on time? Um, can they afford all of those things? But another fascinating aspect of it is, um, especially when, when people get older, um, what about family members who are helping the parents pay the bills? Yeah. 
or you know parents paying the same bill over and over again that could be an indication of perhaps a cognitive decline like there are things and options from just something as simple as bill pay that you can do a lot to help change someone's lives essentially i couldn't agree more we um so we haven't named this feature yet. Uh, it's on our roadmap. I'm going to call it family plan for now. Uh, it, it will, it will have something a little more catchy when it goes live next year. But the family plan is essentially that, right? We've identified two things. Uh, parents need to help children and children, you know, needing to help, uh, elderly parents. It's the same, same approach. It's essentially you are, um, uh, a guardian of sorts, right? And, uh, and, and you taking over someone else's, uh, you know, responsibility when it comes to financial responsibility. They're, you know, they're still obviously alive and well, but they need help. And, uh, and that's a no brainer because I'm a parent and, uh, and I have a, an aging parent who I'm helping or pay bills, uh, regularly. So to me, it was like a thing that I do. And I'm like, why not productize it? I'm sure that other people could, could help it as, uh, could, could use it as well to help, uh, you know, their families. And so the dynamic is slightly different. So on the one hand, if you're a parent with a child, uh, and we decided to kind of draw the line uh, pretty high in terms of age, we don't want to, you know, allow this for young children, but you know, 17, uh, 18, and before you're sort of independent, uh, you need help with credit, right? So like when I came to this country, my stepfather uh, co-signed on my very fir first uh, store card, which was I think it's a Dillard's card. Now I bought a pair of slacks, and uh, and this is the only reason I have credit today because it was that pair of slacks that I purchased at Dillard's uh, on yeah. that card, and I paid it off, you know, in installments, and that was great, right? And suddenly I was I was on a map somewhere, um, and we thought, you know, parents across this country dealing with this all the time, and there's this concept in, in the credit card space called authorized user, so you can. Uh, you can either co-sign or you can uh, put someone as an authorized user on your credit product, your card. And suddenly they're, they're another person on the card and the credit is being built. And we thought, well, if I'm a, a, you know, an adult and I have a Stellar account and I'm paying a bunch of bills using a Stellar account, why not add you know, my 17-year-old as an authorized user, assign the bills that are his bills or her bills anyway. Uh, for example, I don't have a 17-year-old, but I have a 9-year-old uh, who plays Nintendo all the time. And, and so we have a Nintendo subscription. And, uh, and I pay for it. And I'm like, well, well, that's really their responsibility. So why not create a sub account, uh, assign that bill to them, help them be more responsible and, you know, cover that bill. And now that bill is billing their credit, right? So, and, and also teaching them as a parent how to be responsible, you know, with their obligations. So that's, uh, that's one aspect or one side of that family plan. And the other side, of course, you know, an aging parent, you can create a sub account, uh, because generally they probably wouldn't be able to manage themselves. And here you just uh, you're basically covering that for them, and you can use like their you know savings uh, link to it, or you can use your own capital right to uh, to pay for their bills, so to speak. So that's a uh, that's a very important point you brought up, and it's a very you know uh, near and dear to my heart. I actually cannot wait. It's one of those things that we want to be very patient in terms of you know feature releases and making sure that everything is built on a, on a solid foundation. But that's one of those things I can't wait to push through. <laughs> That's music to my ears. I can't tell you um, how many times I've tried to talk to founders on creating features that, that can do something like that, family caregiving, um, financial caregiving, I call it. And um, I, I cannot tell you how many times I either get pushed back 
no, we don't deal with old people or no, we don't like that. That's not what we think about. And um, so thank you for being thoughtful and, and thank you for being you essentially. And it brings me to, to the next question. Is that something that actually Mary and I talked about last time when we had dinner together, my dear, that was in San Francisco. Um, looking at everything that has happened, right? FinTech, there's gazillion dollars that has gone into FinTech development. Um, a lot of smart people, a lot of money going around, a lot of promise of FinTech was supposed to change the world. It's supposed to change the status quo. It's supposed to do X. We're sitting end of 2022. <laughs> Has it accomplished what it set out to do, do you think? Um, if you were to give it a score, what would it be? And, and what did we miss sorely? Oh, man. Um, we need another hour. <laughs> <laughs> we probably need another week uh, to talk about this. I, so to be honest, uh, the answer is no. I think we all know this, right? Um, the answer is uh, is no, but with a with a big uh, asterisk here or, or caveat to that. We I think we build a foundation. I think fintech changed the culture enough where we can actually start doing creative things. But fundamentally, what fintech set out to do, I think, was naive from the get go to say that we're just going to overhaul things. And you know, it goes back to my earlier. Um, comments about you know banking and its role in society you can't just like change things with better uh tech and i think tech founders need to be humble about that and we need to be more realistic about what we set out to do you know just like with our family feature you can use technology to uh, to facilitate you know um be better transaction maybe faster transaction maybe a transaction that wouldn't have occurred if you didn't have you know tech behind it but you're not changing the nature of banking you're not changing uh, the nature of like risk, for example. Uh, it's all of those uh, things that you know fintech set out to do uh, by extending banking to the unbanked because somehow we were going to have a better model than the incumbents, and somehow we would know, um, you know, that the risky people are actually not risky because we'll, we would somehow acquire this piece of data from something that's hidden from the, the bank's eye. I mean, that was that was incredibly naive, I think, for the industry to think. Right. It's, uh, and uh, and I think what FinTech has done is created transparency, uh, created faster communication. Right. So payments to me is, is just another way uh, of communicating. Right. We we're now communicating faster. We're exchanging data faster from point A to point B, which is great. And we forcing the, you know, the, the incumbents to move at that pace, too. And, you know, it created hope, right? It's like, what is that analogy everyone uses um, in sci-fi? So sci-fi sort of like precedes actual technological development. So like someone has to come up with a crazy, you know, sci science fiction idea that it inspires uh, someone to build it, right? In real life, like submarines, planes, all those things were just, uh, you know, kind of figments of someone's imagination in like 19th century. And then in the 20th century, they became life because someone read that book as a child and was inspired by it. I feel like we're, we're in that stage of fintech. We, you know, we, we've created a lot of, uh, you know, phantoms, uh, that will be one day real things that will be truly transformative to, you know, human existence. Uh, but right now we're just sort of chipping away piece by piece.
of people say credit fintech for like the overdraft reckoning happening. Um, I think I think that's fair. And like Chase doing early paydays now, of course, is a yeah. I copied you thing. Um, but it will be fascinating to see when it gets when the stakes are higher. What 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 develops? I I, I agree. I mean, like Robinhood is another example, right? Uh, democratizing access to uh, to trading, something that had high enough of a barrier. I mean, they're not they're not changing trading. They did absolutely nothing for you know trading as a you know as a, an activity, if you will. But they made it cheaper, and and now everyone's offering you know cheap trading accounts, right? And it's and it's fascinating that it led to potentially contributed to the the social phenomenon of Reddit trading and the whole you know GameStop uh, you know craziness. Like they were in the middle of that storm, and that, that just fintech like truly breaking some of the levers, but not fundamentally overhauling the system. I think that's kind of where we are as a, as an industry. And you're making bill pay relevant again. I mean, I, I covered this <laughs> well, I for so that. many years, and you never really hear that take the stage. So, making bill pay relevant again, <laughs> Mary. I think you just hit that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, look. Here's what we want to do. I want to be very honest. We want to redefine the way consumers and lenders interact with credit. And and I, I don't mean that by creating better models, right? What I mean is this: consumers. Uh, need help paying bills on time. They they need a system, right? Everyone needs a system. No one wants, no one has time or or wants to be educated how to do it. So what we're giving them is a, uh, a sort of a digest of what to do in a form of a of a widget. We're widgetizing education. That's what we're doing. So like you don't have to learn. You can just go through the steps that will help you learn, right? On one hand, how to be a better borrower and how to repay better. So we're not changing the nature of repayment or borrowing. We're just automating some of those processes, and therefore, you know, at scale, we will sort of transform the way people interact with repayment. And because we're changing one side of that equation, repayment, we are sort of changing the way lenders will take risk. Because today, you know, they're 100% own that risk, right? If you give someone money, you end to end own your collections. You own the fact that uh, they may not pay you, and so the only thing you have today is. A probabilistic model that you're making decisions on. You, you, it's an underwriting model. You say that you look at a model, you crunch some numbers, and you say, okay, well, mean is probably not the best borrower, so I'm not going to give him money. Or if I do, I'm going to offset my risk by, you know, by charging a crazy interest rate. And what we're saying here is that we are creating a population that is mechanically, like think of Android <laughs> enhanced uh, cyborgs of sorts, mechanically enhanced people. Uh, in terms of repayment, so they're they're become better borrowers, even if you know normally they wouldn't be. And so now a lender doesn't have to rely on the model alone. They can uh, they can make a decision that's a lot more permissive. They can reduce their interest rates. They can you know reduce their cutoff limits. And so that fundamentally changes uh, at scale, changes credit completely, overhauls it without changing the the paradigm of credit. You still have a lender, you still have a borrower, you still have the repayment process, and you still have the risk, right? Great, so we look forward to a bunch of humanoids uh, being <laughs> The army of stellar cyborgs. That's what we're. Uh, that's what we're building. <laughs> sounding at all. Stellar <laughs> cyborgs. All right. So before we close, one quick one. Um, what is the one thing you would like to see happen next year? 
in terms of um, anything, industry, whatever. Mm -hmm. Hmm. There's so many things. One thing I'd like to see happen next year is um, I want to I want to see open banking actually like take root in this country. I think uh, I think we've we've shipped away enough at it where there's enough access um, through you know products like Plaid or MX. But I think I think the, the something at a federal level needs to give banks permission. So we need to chill out a bit about you know privacy and, and let consumers sort of control you know their own data, right? And and create a, an environment that lets consumers be masters of, of of their own data, right? And their own profile, their own bank account, no matter where it is, and hand it to wherever they want to hand it to, uh, and reap the you know, economic benefits of uh, of that freedom. Uh, that's a, you know, a dream of sorts, right? And this is not like a, you know, something I expected to happen, but that's one thing I'd love to see happen. Um, more realistic and more relevant to, um, uh, to what we do, but related to my first point, you know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see, um, credit as an industry accept more uh, alternative data into their system. Uh, right now, you know, most models like FICO models and Vantage models, they don't accept any attributes related to um, things like utilities, subscriptions, rent. Uh, and I understand why, right? These are not credit transactions. Uh, they're, they're just unrelated to truly you know, the borrowing behavior. But there is enough of a correlation between you know, paying someone reliably and consistently and paying someone when you borrow money reliably and consistently. So I'd love to see that, that becoming more normalized. Um, and so that's, uh, that's kind of a real wish list item for me. I like that. And, and I think we have heard enough from a lot of different people actually calling, calling for that change, because the truth is the way we're living is different. The way we earn an income is different. So there's no reason why the way we handle credit should stay the same. Um, I think we need to continue to move and evolve and serve more people to your point. Um, with those changes. So with that, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, it's, uh, I feel like we need a session two and a session three. Um, I definitely want to catch up with you uh, next year when you, when you have the family plan out, um, your stories and inspiration um, and what you guys are doing are amazing. So thank you for spending time with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Let's turn this into a series. I like it. <laughs> you should do that, Mary. Let's, let's, let's do it. Um, I'm game. <laughs> awesome. Well, and for the rest of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you all next week.